China's Xi takes direct aim at the United States. Plus, Tesla cuts prices, and the UK and US ready sweeping new restrictions on asylum seekers. Part of the overall problem is that while there is too much illegal immigration, there's potentially not enough legal ways for people to move and, and get there. It's Tuesday, March 7th. I'm Luke Vargas with The Wall Street Journal, and here's the AM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories moving your world today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has issued an unusually blunt rebuke of U.S. policy, singling out what he called a Washington-led campaign of, quote, containment, encirclement, and suppression. The remarks were part of a speech to members of China's top political advisory body and have been widely reported by Chinese state media. Our China bureau chief, Jonathan Cheng, has more. It's interesting because typically... I think Xi Jinping wants to be the guy who is going to be able to cooperate and able to talk to the U.S., able to be sort of above the fray by directly blaming the U.S. and by linking it with challenges that China is acknowledging. It is a bit more open in its antagonism. It goes beyond just competition into sort of this dirty competition analogy and and claim that's being made here. In France, more than a million people are expected to go on strike today. It is the latest round of nationwide protests pitting unions against the government of French President Emmanuel Macron, who has proposed raising the official pension age from 62 to 64 years. More than 250 protests are expected in Paris and around the country, with unions threatening to paralyze the economy by targeting rail networks, airports, and major roads. Tesla is cutting prices again in its latest effort to boost demand in a competitive market. The company has lowered the cost of a Model S luxury sedan by around 5%, while the Model X SUV is now roughly 9% cheaper. Tesla also cut prices in January for its best-selling Model Y and Model 3, though it later reversed some of those cuts. The company didn't respond to a request for comment. We'll have more on how Chinese electric vehicle makers are gaining global market share later in the show. We are exclusively reporting that TikTok is rolling out a new charm offensive to assure European politicians that it's safeguarding user data on the continent. Wall Street Journal China Markets reporter Rebecca Fung says that effort, known as Project Clover, mirrors a project to win allies in the United States and comes as a wave of governments restrict use of the video sharing app. The fear is that the Chinese government would force TikTok's Beijing-based owner, ByteDance, to hand over data on users. So Project Clover is really a charm offensive aimed at convincing British and European Union politicians of its plans to basically secure the data of European users. So TikTok met up with British lawmakers on Monday to basically assure them that the European and British users' data is secured. And some attendees actually of these briefings that they appreciate the company's efforts to demonstrate the transparency. But at the end of the day, they remain skeptical of the company's ability to refuse an order from the Chinese government if the order comes. According to a TikTok spokesman, the company will soon announce details about data security measures that it plans to implement in Europe. 
And on deck for today, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell will begin two days of congressional testimony by fielding questions from U.S. senators on the central bank's monetary policy. You probably know Tesla, Toyota, and VW, but what about BYD? The Chinese electric vehicle maker is one of several Chinese manufacturers that's not just outselling foreign brands at home, but is now targeting buyers from Europe to Australia and seeing its exports surge. Wall Street Journal reporter Selena Cheng covers China's automobile sector for us out of Hong Kong, and she joins me now with a market update. Selena, welcome. Could you give us a snapshot of the Chinese EV landscape now and the growth that it has been undergoing lately? So one of the best-known Chinese domestic brands is a brand called BYD. Another big corporation, Geely, has their own brands as well, even though they do own several foreign car groups. There are also EV startups, electric vehicle startups called NIO or Xpeng. Chinese car companies have been exporting their vehicles to all over the world since more than a decade ago. In the last two or three years, their number of exports have surged. Instead of hanging around a million vehicles a year exported, they're now exporting almost three million. What are some of the differentiating factors that could be allowing these brands to be so competitive now? So, for example, BYD, they have a lot of volume models. They sell at slightly cheaper prices at large quantities and just churning them out really, really quickly. And so a lot of these BYD cars are actually en route on cargo ships to Europe while the dealerships in Europe are placing orders for them. So customers are getting these BYD cars much faster than some European brands that they could have otherwise gotten. And in a place like Germany, for example, When you've got government subsidies for EVs phasing out soon, then it becomes a big consideration for consumers if they like to still take advantage of these subsidies if they could get an EV delivered quicker than others. And another reason that some consumers find Chinese brands attractive is that some companies are offering innovative features when they purchase a vehicle. For example, this brand called NIO allowed consumers a lot of options in terms of car purchase. So buyers can buy a car without buying a car battery. And instead, they'll pay a monthly subscription fee to rent the battery instead, which means by the time this battery is worn out or by the time the company puts out a new, more powerful battery, the customer will have the option to upgrade their battery. That was Wall Street Journal reporter Selena Cheng, who covers China's automobile sector for us out of Hong Kong. Selena, thank you. You're welcome. Coming up, as the UK prepares to introduce a blanket ban on asylum seekers arriving by boat, we'll look at those plans and their similarities to recent efforts underway in the United States after the break. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. 
The UK government is today expected to ban asylum seekers who arrive on small boats from the English Channel from applying for British citizenship, a law that the government of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says is necessary to stabilize an asylum system that's overwhelmed. And Wall Street Journal UK bureau chief David Luno joins us now with more on why it's not just the British government that's weighing new immigration restrictions at the moment. David Am I right? The UK has been cracking down on asylum seekers arriving by boat for some time now. How then would this proposed law take that further? Well, they've been trying to stop what is a growing surge of people coming across the channel in small boats. The numbers have really skyrocketed in the last few years, although they're much, much smaller than what European countries like Germany deal with and what the US deals with its border with Mexico. In the past, Any asylum seeker under international law can have a fair hearing when they turn up at another country's border if their life is in danger. And these rules have been broadly put in place ever since World War II. What the British proposed law does is say, well, if you turn up and you've transited through another country that's considered a safe third country and you turn up at our shores, we're not going to let you in. In the past, they would let them in, house them in hotels and have their asylum cases proceed through the courts. But that can take years. So right now, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the British asylum system, which is overwhelmed. They're staying in hotels. They're costing British taxpayers quite a bit of money. And so people want sort of more drastic measures taken. And so what is the breakdown of opinions on this? Well, I think there's a segment of the population, probably a similar segment that voted for Brexit, which sees immigration and uncontrolled borders as a big problem they want the country to take control of these borders, and Sunak is trying to placate that part of the electorate. The trouble is that actually leaving the European Union may have caused a little bit more difficulty in controlling those borders because at this point, Britain can say it's going to expel migrants who come through other countries, but where is it going to send them to? So if France doesn't accept them back, where do you send them? Can you send them back to Syria or Afghanistan or a war-torn country? That's not generally seen as the right thing to do. So Britain needs to have agreements with other countries that they will accept these returned migrants. But of course, these other countries have migration issues of their own and political issues of their own. So no one's very happy to accept this. So in theory, it sounds like a good proposal, but a lot of the opposition members are saying, well, how is this actually going to make a difference? Because they're going to arrive here, you're going to detain them, but then you're not going to have anywhere to send them. So in effect, it might not actually lead to much change. But David, whether it leads to change or not, other countries are making similar moves, including the United States, right? Yeah, that's right. I think for all Western developed countries, it's very difficult to tell people turn up at your border and they're requesting asylum. And it's difficult to tell who are the people that legitimately fear for their lives and need asylum, basically some kind of immediate protection, and economic migrants, people who are migrating because they want a better life. And that's fair enough, but it shouldn't fall under asylum law. So what the U.S. law is trying to do is say, well, if you're arriving at our border and like the British law, you've come from or you've come through what we consider a safe third country, we are going to deny you the opportunity to have an asylum hearing in the U.S. and enter while that hearing plays out. Now, the U.S. will have to argue that countries like Mexico are safe third countries or countries like Guatemala. That's a trickier argument because of a lot of the violence in these countries. But it's an attempt, again, to bring some sort of order to the system. Okay, so policies to prevent illegal immigration, to unclog the system. But what about those asylum seekers that need a legal way to enter a country, be it to avoid war or avoid political persecution? 
Neither Britain nor the U.S. have a lot of alternatives for people to apply for asylum. So part of the overall problem is that while there is too much illegal immigration, there's potentially not enough legal ways for people to move and, and get there. So the U.S. government did one strategy, which is allowing people, say, from Venezuela, Nicaragua, or Cuba, which are essentially authoritarian dictatorships, to apply through an app and then fly into the U.S. to have their asylum here. That, that would sort of create a pre-screening process that would say, yeah, you sound like you're a candidate for asylum. You can come in. But the rest of you, we're going to turn you back. And David, in addition to there being legal reasons to have those asylum pathways, might there be an economic case to be made for countries like the U.S. and the U.K. who are, after all, facing labor shortages? Well, that's a fascinating question. And you're right. Both countries have labor shortages, which are gumming up the economy a little bit, particularly in Britain. But there's clearly a shortage of labor skilled and unskilled, and that drives up prices across your economy and creates problems for businesses and, and then consumers. So there needs to be some kind of thought given to, well, is there a way we can have, again, a more legal, orderly process and take it seriously? Politicians give it lip service. But, you know, the U.S. move with Venezuela is one of the first ones to sort of say, OK, we're going to give you a process in your country to apply. So you don't have to essentially undertake what is a terrifying thousands of miles long journey through either drug infested areas of Central America and Mexico or through Europe and, and get on a rickety boat and try to make your way across the storm-tossed English Channel, which isn't a great picnic either. So trying to figure out some kind of legal pathway, I think, is the big unsolved issue. That was Wall Street Journal UK Bureau Chief David Luno. David, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And finally, where have all the electricians gone? As America tries to electrify, the essential workers in the renewable energy transition are in increasingly short supply and struggling to manage current demand. And when government climate incentives kick in, some worry that the industry simply won't be able to keep up. WSJ climate finance reporter Amrit Ramkumar explains what's behind these shortages. People have been struggling to get workers for a long time, but particularly in parts of the country like the Northeast and California, demand for EV chargers, heat pumps, these products is through the roof. So electricians I spoke to say they're having to try to hire more and raise the pay for the people they employ, but they're also getting pinched by higher equipment costs at the same time. And the new climate law called the Inflation Reduction Act is expected to add to those problems. Then you add to that a lot of electricians retired during covid and there aren't as many young people stepping up to fill those jobs. So it's definitely something where like the electricians unions and trade associations are working really hard to address this. So it's definitely a big challenge and something to watch moving forward. And that's What's News for Tuesday morning. We'll be back tonight with a new show. I'm Luke Vargas with The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.